Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Happy Sunday. We are excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Forget about them. We'll just hang out. No, uh, I'm so glad you guys are here. Happy Labor Day weekend. I uh, hope we have a lot of fun plans for tomorrow. How many of you have the day off tomorrow? How many of you, your bosses aren't American? They, they don't, they're not real Americans. All right, it's good. It's perfect. Um, I talked to somebody like, yeah, I don't have tomorrow off. I'm like, isn't it like a national holiday? I thought that was like required. I hope you're getting overtime. So I uh, hope you have some fun to do tomorrow, but I'm glad that you're here today. As Katie said, uh, we are excited for the month of September to kick off a brand new series called Revealed, uh, looking at how the church, this thing that we are currently a part of, uh, right now, you're a part of it, whether you meant to be or not, whether someone dragged you here or not, uh, whether you've been looking forward to it or not, or whether you wish you could get out of it or not, uh, you are a part of it right now, and how the church throughout Scripture has been revealed by God. There's four specific ways, actually, that the church is revealed. Uh, we're going to look at those for the next four weeks uh, after today, and ultimately how us as followers of Jesus, those of us who have decided to stake our life on the claim and the life and teachings of Jesus, that we are actually a part of how God reveals his heart to the world. So I'm really excited uh, that you are here. I hope you will make an effort to be a part of this series for all four weeks following today, because uh, you already got today checked off, so gold star. Um, but as we jump in, how many of you, you had your kids go back to school this last week or so? You had kids go back to school? Some of you, yes. How many of you, you are excited about that? You're like, yes, this is the best part of the year. Kids are out of the house? No. Some of you? All right. How many of you are like, oh, I miss them already. I miss them already. It's good. Uh, the last week of summer is always fun because all the parents are on one of the edges of the spectrum. Nobody's in the middle. Nobody's neutral, right? Nobody's Switzerland. Everybody has feelings. Uh, and so uh, we are excited. I remember when I was going back to school uh, as a kid, it was a big deal. And now as a parent, Sailor starts preschool uh, next Sunday. So it's like all the feels, right? Uh, I'm on a different side of it now. It's kind of a big deal. But as a student, I remember specifically going into fifth grade. I wasn't just going back to school. Uh, I was going to a new school. And so I had all the extra of like, not only am I going back to school and can't wait to see my friends and all that stuff, but I was going to a brand new school. I knew some of the people that were there. So I was going to meet a lot of people. It was going to be a brand new experience. And so I was ready. I was excited. Like, I'm, I'm not going to worry about the class stuff, but I'm going to make a bunch of new friends. I'm going to run this school. It's going to be awesome. Uh, you know, again, I was nine or whatever. I had a lot of big dreams for my life. Uh, and, and so if I'm going to run this school, uh, I got to get new shoes, right? They were very, very important. I had to get a new pair of Airwalks. Anybody else? Mid-90s, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Some of you are nodding. Like, you had them too. Uh, you know, I should have brought in a picture of them, but I probably couldn't find them. Uh, they're probably at Payless now, actually, but trends change. But that was a big thing. And I remember we got, you know, new backpacks and supplies, but we always went school shopping uh, for new clothes and specifically new shoes every summer when I was a kid. And I, going into fifth grade, I set out my entire outfit, including my brand new Airwalks, for like almost a month on my dresser. And I didn't want to wear it. I didn't want to get it messed up. I didn't want to scuff my new shoes because that first day of school, I wanted them to be new. I, I wanted to show up to a new year, a new me, with new shoes. And I remember, and it was very, very big deal. And I remember that even now. And uh, fifth grade was a, a long time ago. And then I remember I went to college not quite as long ago. Uh, and I went to UC Santa Barbara. I was raised in Orange County, but I went up uh, Central Coast to, to college. It was like the perfect distance away, like three and a half hours. You can still come home if you need something, but you're, you're really away. Like I, I moved away to school. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, all through high school, I, I really wanted to, you know, have great relationships, but I wanted to be what other people wanted me to be. 
I don't know if you ever had that experience where you just like, you kind of mimic people, you kind of want to be who they want you to become. And, and I remember going to college, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to have a fresh start. I'm going to a new school, it's a new season in my life. I want to know that my friendships are real. And you probably have that feeling as well. Like, I want to know these people really enjoy the real me. So I'm not going to exaggerate, I'm not going to tell fake stories. I hear all these people that go to college and they like, you know, embellish what it was like in high school and like kind of puff themselves up. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do the real thing. And that way, even if I only have five friends, I'll know that all five of them like the real me, right? And, and I go to college, and the old me shows up. The, the same pattern shows up. The same storyteller, the same, you know, embellisher, the same uh, person that kind of bends the truth a little bit to kind of get people to like me. That same person showed up. And I remember at the end of freshman year, I actually was hanging with a bunch of my friends, and I said, I just like had this moment of courage, and I was like, Hey, guys, I got to tell you something. Like, a bunch of those stories I told you, I was just telling you that to get you to like me. Most of it's not even true. And, like, we had this big conversation. But we all have these moments where we want something. We actually crave and need something new in our life. Not just at the new school year, not just at the annual, you know, new year. But we all have spaces where we need something new. And, and the world craves it. We crave it. We look for it in new shoes, new jobs, new relationships, new cars, new adventures, whatever it might be. We all need new more than we might even know in our life. And the good news is, is that the God that we follow, the God of the scriptures, is actually a God who is all about making all things new. He's all about making all things new. Now, I don't know what your experience with God has been like. I don't know where you come from, you know, what your background has been, or what you even might walk into a room like this this morning. And, and you might think of God and new as almost polar opposites. Like, when I think of God, I kind of more think of something like old or even like ancient. Like, wasn't he around at the beginning? Uh, like, yes, very astute. He was around at the beginning. So he's, he is not new, but he's absolutely interested in creating new things. But for most people, because of their experience, they don't put God and new together. The idea of God or the idea of church or even, you know, some sort of faith or religion is often revered as antiquated. Or it, was, it was valuable at some point, but it's not, certainly not fresh, certainly not new, certainly not doing something in my life here and now. And yet, as we see throughout the entire story of the scriptures, both in the beginning and with Jesus and even to this day, that God is constantly looking for new ways to connect with people to ultimately restore them to all of who he's created them to be. And that includes you and me, even here today. And so uh, we're going to begin by looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 43. If not, there's a blue Bible in the seat back pocket directly in front of you. Uh, you can grab that if you want and turn there. Uh, in Isaiah, it's on 439. And uh, the book of Isaiah, I'm sorry, 330, no, sorry, 349. Um, and in Isaiah uh, 43, Isaiah is this prophet that is speaking to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is this long story in the Hebrew Scriptures, the first two-thirds or so of the Bible. And they have some very, very memorable moments in their journey as a tribe. And you might imagine, if you hear these words without knowing the context of what Isaiah was speaking into, you might imagine that everything was going really, really well for Israel in this moment. But in fact, the exact opposite was true. That they had actually lost their status as a, as a nation in the world. 
They'd actually lost their power, that they had kind of gone through the rise and fall of the era of King David. Perhaps you've heard of King David, where Israel and specifically Jerusalem was the center point of Middle Eastern culture. And they began in that season to trust in their position and trust in political power. And then they became the outcast once again. They were overtaken by another superpower, and now they don't know what the future holds. And they might have been asking the question, God did some great things in the past, but where is God now? And maybe you found yourself in that same spot. I know, God, you've been around. I know you've been faithful. But in this particular season of my story, you're just not showing up. And that's exactly the context to which Isaiah speaks these words. And so in Isaiah 43, uh, we're going to start in verse 16. It says this. It says, thus saith the Lord, which, you know, he felt like he needed to say, but everybody that was listening to what was about to come out of his mouth would have known this must be from God because my circumstances are telling a very different story, right? And so he says, thus saith the Lord, verse 16, by the way, the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched out like a wick. And Isaiah points back to the most notorious moment in the Israelite history. The season that if you've ever watched Prince of Egypt, you know the story where God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through on dry land and the Egyptian army is on their tail hunting them down and the water closes in. And what he's saying is this thing that we have on accident begin to put our trust in. Horses and chariots, our superpower, those are the things that were exactly the exact same thing that God took away from the, the people that were oppressing us at one point, and now we have fallen into the same trap, and that's why we're here. He tells this story that would remind them of the thing that they would have heard from you know young age, long ago, great, 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 great grandparents experienced, but none of them that were alive would have been there, and so they were attaching their faith to something God had done, God used to do, but they weren't experiencing it for themselves. And so God reminds them of that. That's who's speaking, the one that still did those things. But here's what I'm telling to you, starting in verse 18. It says, remember not the former things. Like, remember all those things I did? Yeah, forget about them, right? Don't consider the things of old, for behold, I am doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not even perceive it? I will make a way, he says, in the wilderness, and the rivers will come out of the desert. See, the prophet Isaiah is ultimately speaking to this tension that we all face in our lives, where when you are at a moment of change, do you see it as the end of an old story or the beginning of a new story? Because both operate simultaneously. They're both there and present in tension, but the perspective that we have, whether it's about something old or whether we're moving into something new, will absolutely define our attitude about it will absolutely define what we get out of that scenario. And so as God is saying, yes, I did that thing. The best predictor of your future is my past faithfulness. That is 100% true. We anchor ourselves in that. But let's not get stuck and settle for stagnation. Let's not just tell stories of what we used to hear God do. But let's experience something where God moves in our own lifetime, in our own story, in this moment, through us now and they would have heard that and thought maybe like you are right now like well surely that doesn't mean for me surely that's for someone else that can't be 
for my world. But see, that's exactly the point, is that these Israelites, they knew, they had been told of the story where God made dry land show up through the waters, but they had yet to hear or experience a story where water showed up in dry land, and they were living literally, physically, and spiritually in a desert, and perhaps that's where you find yourself right now. And the voice of God wants to speak into your story and says, I am doing something new. Don't look for a repeat of the old, but watch for what I'm about to do. See, the idea of this story is the fact that God is always writing a new story. There's always something new, always something more, and it's always going to be beyond your own view of your own circumstances. Because if the, if the Israelites, they heard Isaiah, they were to look around, they were to say, like, this is just, that's impossible. That can't possibly be true. Because that's the idea, right? If it, if it were something that you could see, it would be called sight, not vision. And so when Isaiah tells this story, he is pointing them to a deeper vision. And so I don't know where you're at, like I said, on the spiritual spectrum. I don't know all of your stories. But you've got to know something, that this community, we actually stake our claim on. The reason we exist is because we actually believe that the greatest story ever told started on the darkest day of history. That actually the moment that looked like it was the absolute worst moment of all time, where death had won, where the person that we believe to be God was actually murdered and killed, that's when it actually began. When it seemed like all hope was lost was actually the birthplace of hope. When it felt like all of the things that everybody else had said about Jesus, that he wasn't who he said he was, absolutely they were true, he actually began to become all of who God created him to be, and he has the same offer for you and for me. That we actually believe that the circumstances that surround any moment don't actually define what's possible in that moment because we follow a person who came back from the grave. You see, the day that Jesus was killed, there were no Jesus followers. Everybody had abandoned him. They had all fled, except for his mom and John. Even those that said, everyone else might run from you, but I will be there. Actually, he was the first to go. Because so often we can take our own effort as what we actually place our faith in. But it isn't until our circumstances look like they're not able to be overcome that God says, now you're actually trusting in a move of my hand, not of your own. And so this idea that Jesus is about to tell us about, that we are to take that story to the world, is unlike any other community. It's a story that defines no other religion. It's a story that is bigger and better than any company or endeavor that you might ever be a part of because Jesus actually empowers and invites all people to share the story of death, uh, life from death. That death once had a hold on all of us, it had broken us, but he actually says you can share a better story. So in your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 28. Uh, again, in this one, it's on page 487 in the Blue Bible. And this is a phrase of scripture that has become super important for those of us that follow Jesus. And we call it the Great Commission. And ultimately, Matthew, as you're turning there, you should know this. The person that wrote this down, he actually was one of the eyewitnesses that followed around Jesus. This isn't just, oh, some scriptural Bible text. Matthew was one of the few people uh, that actually walked around and saw Jesus 
teach and heal and do miracles, and then saw him after he came back from the dead. And people knew this. By the time Matthew had written this down, this wasn't hundreds of years later. This was still in his lifetime. And so people would hear Matthew's stories. They would read his letter, and they would go, oh, yeah, well, we get it. You were there. We believe you. You were an eyewitness. This isn't hearsay. And so when Matthew tells this story, he's coming to this as not only a personal eyewitness, but also a personal recipient of God's goodness. See, Matthew was a tax collector, and it's hard for us to really understand what that means, but Matthew had turned in all loyalty to his own religion, to his own community, to his own family, to chase after wealth. And tax collectors were viewed as the worst of sinners, and yet Jesus invites Matthew to join his inner circle, to which everybody watching would have been like, wait, what? Not him. Even his own crew, even Peter, who was a really, really good Jewish boy, he grew up, and he was in Jesus' you know, group, and then he invites Matthew, and he's like, whoa, wait a second. I'm not so sure about this. And we see their relationship play out, and division within Jesus' followers starts while Jesus is still on the planet. And yet, here is what Matthew says. After he sees Jesus risen from the dead. I mean, people say all the time on their deathbed, hey, I got to get this off my chest. Hey, loved ones, friends, family, I love you. I want you to hear that. Hey, by the way, here's where the key is to the lockbox. It's buried in the basement, in the backyard. You know, you got to get all the stuff out, whatever it might be. Uh, here's my will for you. Here's what the last thing I want you to hear. Imagine what you would say if you had only a few moments left with your friends. Now imagine what you would say if you actually were killed and you came back from the dead and you had 40 days to tell everything you needed to know. And so we read this back half of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is just giving order after order and he says, this is what's so important. Starting in verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them and when they saw him, they worshiped him. And then don't miss these three words. But some still doubted. But some doubted. And what this means, this is why I think it's so important that this is included in the scriptures. This wasn't added in later. This was Matthew's account of the actual moment. He says, there were people there, but not all of them were followers of Jesus still. Some of them were still unsure. The categorization that we would have put their doubters is that maybe that's how you would find yourself today. That if you were honest, you would say, I'm not so sure about this Jesus thing. I'm not so sure that I can believe what you guys might claim to believe or what my grandparents taught me to believe or whatever your story might have been. And yet I love that in the very notes of Scripture from someone who was actually there, he says, yeah, it's okay. It's okay that there's doubt. It's okay you don't have it all figured out. It's okay that you aren't 100% sure. Even people that saw him literally physically come back from the dead, not all of them were sure yet. And yet to all of them, Jesus says these next words, which I believe means to all of us as well. Jesus says these next words. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All of it. That's a powerful statement. That fear you have about your business, Jesus actually has more power than that fear has over you. The struggle you have in your relationship about finances and how it causes you guys to, to fight and disagree and, and not sleep well, Jesus actually has authority over that. That hurt that you have from a past relationship or a lack of relationship, Jesus actually has authority over that. That sin pattern that you keep falling back into, and so do I, 
Jesus actually has authority over that if we will speak the name of Jesus. And he says, so, because all authority has been given to me, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And then he goes out. He's gone. He ascends into heaven. That's the last thing Jesus says. And yet for many of us, we read a passage like that and we wonder, does, is that for me? Like, is, that, is that important for my life as well? If, like I said, if you were at the end of your life and you had one last thing to say to the people that you love the most, what, what would you say to them? This is what Jesus chooses to say to his closest friends and followers, and I believe to us as well, as the most important thing he tells us, the last thing we hear before he goes away, before he goes to heaven. And so what this means is that Jesus actually never said that the world needs to come to church, but he called his church to go out into the world. Jesus never said that people out there need to come into this building, into this gathering, into a church. That's actually never been Jesus' goal. But that we, those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus, that we are to go out into the world and be the church. See, like we said, just like us, the world is always looking for new. They may not even have words for it, but something in their soul screams for new. A desire for something different, a desire for something better, a fresh start, a new opportunity, a second chance. And the place that they're going to find that is ultimately through Jesus. The place that you and I find that is ultimately through Jesus. But every single one of us desires new, and so does every single one of your neighbors and coworkers and family members and the people that you see every day and the ones that you look past as you move throughout your day. And so when the Bible says that the church was never meant to be a place that people, you know, all kind of come and gather and, and show up at the same time on the same day and I'll stare in the same direction and listen to one person talk. Or this is a dangerous message for my job security, right? Uh, that, that, that's actually never what the church was meant to be. That this ultimately is meant to be the team huddle, and then we all go out and we all have a role to play. That this is just the place where we show up and get encouraged because ultimately you have friends and family members, you have coworkers in your life that might never come to this building, but they need the church. They need you to be the church and go to them. See, somewhere along the way, as a community throughout generations, we have missed this idea, even though it could not be more clear in Scripture. And, and so things happen along the way where churches that were little buildings where people would show up regularly, people stopped showing up, and those buildings closed down, and we think that the church is now obsolete or irrelevant. A friend of mine sent me this picture. Uh, they, went, they went to this little brewery up in Michigan, and they posted it on Instagram, and she made sure I saw it, and I thought it was really interesting. It was both funny and also kind of broke my heart a little bit, but this is Beer Church Brewing Company, and they're hanging out at Beer Church Brewing Company, which is a great way to increase attendance, I think, uh, if we could just do Beer Church Brewing Company. But I saw that, and I thought, wow, at some point in the story of that little building, there was probably a meeting. They probably asked some questions like, what could we do or what should we do to help people that are outside of here hear about what's happening, hear about what we believe, hear about who we follow inside of here? But over time, 
the answer to a lot of those questions is probably no. We don't want to make a change. And over time, the vision fire went out and preferences became the highest aspiration and comfort began to rule over courage and safety and survival as an organization became the rule of the day and eventually that little church shut down and closed its doors and sold its building and a brewery bought it, probably at a pretty cheap price. And my guess is it's more crowded now because the brewery thought it would be cute to keep the building looking like a church and name their company Beer Church Brewing Company. And there's something in my soul that wonders if the same generation that maybe made it difficult to make some of those changes at that particular church, if they're frustrated now that the church has lost influence in their children or grandchildren's generation. And if they see their kids going a different direction, they see their grandkids no longer attending a church and they wonder if they should go back and say, how can we be about something more than just our little circle? And so at the end of the day, this is the question that we need to wrestle with. Because when the church is just a place, it actually very quickly becomes irrelevant. But when the church is a movement of people loving and following Jesus, it actually becomes irresistible. Because when you go into your everyday ordinary life, you have a better grasp on what your friends and coworkers and family members and neighbors need. And you know how to contextualize the truth of the story of Jesus to them better than any preacher. And so my hope for us is that ultimately I believe the vision that God has for the world should be the vision that we have for our life. That the vision God has for the world should be the vision that you have for your life. That please be great at your job. Get a promotion. Have a great family. Learn how to surf. Go on adventures. Do all the things that you love to do, but that should never be the end game territory, right? That ultimately all those things just become tools in your tool belt for the vision that God has for the world that has become your vision for your life. That people would begin to love and follow Jesus. Because you have to understand in all of the scriptures, Jesus really only said four things over and over again. Love God, love people, follow me, and help other people follow me. That's it. So if you want to know if you're winning with Jesus, ask, this, ask yourself the question, am I loving God? Am I loving other people? Am I following Jesus as best I know how? And even in my doubt, even in my I don't have it all figured out yet status, even in my question, even in my frustration that God hasn't showed up in my situation the way I hoped he had, are you helping other people follow Jesus in whatever way that looks like? When the fear shows up in your conversations with friends and you start to talk about faith, that you don't have all the answers and you don't know all the right biblical answers to their questions, you can go, you know what? Jesus actually has all authority over heaven and earth. And so I just need to share my story. I just need to be myself. I just need to be present. When things show up in your life and you don't know the answer to how to get through it and you don't even know what prayers to pray, perhaps in that moment, you can remember that as long as I have my vision for my life based on what God's vision for the world is, I'm heading in the right direction. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? The idea that God's vision for the world would become 
our vision for our life. It actually means that you get great at all those things I just mentioned. Because people in your job need you to be there. They need church more than they know. People on your campus need you to be there. Because they might never come to a building, but they're going to interact with you on a daily basis at the locker and your soccer team or whatever it might be. Someone has to reach surfers. Maybe you should volunteer. (laughs) Someone has to reach people in the music industry or engineers or teachers or stay-at-home parents or people that work on cars. Everybody needs somebody to bring the church to them because not everybody's going to come to a building. And that's actually an okay thing. That's not even the point. And so what if we began to shift the lens and realize that even in our right now status, that I don't have it all figured out and neither do you, and that's okay, because even people that saw Jesus face to face after he came back from the dead, some of them still doubted, and that gives me hope, because it means you're invited too, just like they were. It means that you're included too, just like they were. It means you are actually empowered right where you are exactly today to bring the message and hope of Jesus to people in your world even though you don't have it all figured out yourself. And that is what makes following Jesus different, and I believe better than any other life. And so perhaps you can take it personal this week, that you actually take what Jesus did for you personally, that it's not just an ethereal, theological concept, but the realities of the God of the universe that I would rather die than go into eternity without you. And that becomes personal for you. But maybe for some of you, it's, it's that person in your office, and you know that they're having a tough time in their relationship, and they're frustrated all the time, and, and they don't feel like they're very hopeful. And you can bring some hope and some joy and some optimism into their, li- into their life, not because you believe better than they do, but because you actually follow a story that, like I said, on the darkest day of history was the day hope was born. That no matter how dark and difficult the circumstances with, in your life or, or with their life show up to be, that we actually follow a God that says, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and die for your sins because I'm going to come back from the grave. That you can show up with anticipation. You can show up with hope. And that that could actually bleed off of you into that relationship. Maybe it's in the conversations you have with your neighbor. And, you know, every day you kind of do one of these. Hey, the hand up, head nod, which is the universal sign for I acknowledge that you're there, but I don't really want to talk to you, right? Instead of, instead of doing that, maybe you could have a conversation. Or even better, you invite them not to church, but into your life. You're like, hey, you know, every day, most days, yeah, every day, between 5.30 and 7, I eat food. My guess is you probably eat food almost every day between 5.30 and 7 as well. What if one time this next week or so we ate food not just at the same time across the street from each other, but actually in the same room. Get to know each other. Talk. That that becomes a moment where you actually extend an invitation to be with. And that's how the church goes to them. They might never come to this building. Maybe they will. But that's not even the point. That the God of the universe says you have an invitation to invite someone else, not into a religion, not into a church attendance, but better into your home, into your life, to have a meal. And that Jesus actually modeled this. On the night before he would be betrayed and arrested and falsely tried and eventually murdered, he gathered his closest friends and followers into a room and served them a meal. A meal that they were familiar with, something that it was old, but he gave it new meaning. And present in that room were both the loyalist and the devoted follower 
and the deceiver and the doubter and the one that would inevitably betray him just hours later for not even enough money to pay a month's rent. And yet he began this moment with them by washing their feet. And don't, you know, put a nice vignette filter over that experience. These were gross. Middle Eastern male walking around on the dirt for perhaps years until their last cleaned feet. I don't like my feet, right? And this is what Jesus does. And he stoops down and he grabs a towel, the Bible says, and he looks Judas, who was about to trade him in to be tortured and killed, in the eyes and washes his feet. Looks, you know, the Apostle Peter, we call him the Apostle Peter now, but at the time, he was just Simon Peter, who was going to deny him in his moment of need just a few hours later. And he looks him in the eye and slowly, probably silently, washes their feet and then serves them a meal, breaks the bread, passes around the cup and says, I know what this used to mean for you. And I know it's familiar for a past story. But starting here, starting now, it's a new story. It's a story of what we're actually going to experience in just a few hours. You don't even know it yet, but this is about me saying, you're more important to me than my own life. So here, my body, it's going to be broken for you. Here, this cup represents my blood that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. All those things that you've done, all those things you didn't mean to do, and all those things that you actually did on purpose that separate you from God, I'm going to take the punishment for those so that you can have a relationship with God again through me. That's what this means. And he passed it around, and it became personal to them. And so as we receive communion together, as we come and take the bread and take the juice, and as we worship, we want you to know that this is actually for everyone. You don't have to believe enough or be a church member or to be part of some you know, kind of special group because this was actually for everyone even when Jesus first initiated it. To think that Jesus offered communion to Judas, you're invited to. If he invites me, he invites you. And so we hope as you feel comfortable that you'll come up and you'll take a piece of bread. It's gluten-free, so don't let that stop you. Everybody's invited. You'll take a cup and that you would actually let the love of God not be some religious idea, but it would become personal to you. That God loves you. Not the ethereal you the actual you. And he actually invites and empowers you to help other people know that he loves them too. And so I would invite you, if you're able to stand, let's pray together. And then our team is going to be up at these tables. You can come and experience communion together. So again, take a piece of the bread, take a cup of the juice, and then you can go back to your seat and receive the elements if you feel ready. And we're going to worship together. But I hope that as we engage this moment together as a community, you would be open to what God might be inviting you into, that you would see that the church isn't a place we come and then we leave from. You go, oh, I went to a service today, but you would actually leave as a person on mission, that you actually are the church. You are a carrier of the vision that God has for you, and that we get to reveal the vision God has to this world. So let's pray together, and then we'll worship and receive the elements. God, thank you so much that you invite us to be a part of your family, to be a part of your church, not because of who we are, but ultimately just because of who you are and what you did. 
And so, God, as we receive communion together, as we worship together, we just say thank you. As much as we know how and, and even with our doubts and our insecurities and in our fears and in our unsureness, God, we know that you still empower us to move forward with the mission of making your name famous and that you risk that reputation on us. And so, God, we feel unworthy, but we know that you chose us, and so we receive that. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.